check this, wait times, cancer screening, and more regarding COVID-19 with the one and only Dr. Sebastian Rodriguez. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Episode 44, yeah. I caught a frog. Yeah, you caught oh a frog. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Yeah. All right. Listen, listen. You are awesome, Marlo. Li- thanks, everybody, for listening. That was a little intro brought in by number two. Um, we are so excited to bring you this episode. We are talking with Dr. Sebastian Rodriguez. Okay, tell me something. Um, also, be safe. Of the COVID-19 because it's dangerous and you Karen can get it and also different people can get it. Yeah, good. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. So you heard it there from my five-year-old son, Marlo, saying stay safe from the COVID-19. All right. All right, Teddy. Should we tell him about the guest today? Yep. And his name is Sebastian Rodriguez. Sebastian Rodriguez. That's right. He's a orthopedic surgeon who... I've known for a long time, and he and I have had many discussions on what is COVID-19 doing to our wait times. We've had issues with this in, th- prior to COVID-19, and now with the slow ramping up, um, what, how are we going to address this? What is going to be the impact? Same thing with cancer screening. Like Our patients need to be seen, and we just want to be able to advocate for our patients so, uh, Dr. Rodriguez, he's an orthopedic surgeon, as I mentioned before. He's currently working at Humber River in Toronto and, um, a great guy, really knowledgeable. And, um, um, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, let's do it. Let's do it. Sebastian Rodriguez. Let's go. We got the one and only Sebastian Rodriguez. Rodriguez, we go back a ways, man. We go back. I'll, I'll go back 2005 when all those hockey teams back in the day in Ottawa. You remember that, uh, my man Sebastian? A little bit, a little bit. You're on the first uh, resident hockey team that we had there when we were both residents in Ottawa. That's how we got to know you and been friends ever since. Yeah, man. And both of us were on that first line. I don't know if you recall, but yeah, we were we were on the first line PP too. Beauty and the Beast, man. <laughs> who's the Beast? <laughs> I'll, I'll, let, I'll, I'll let you decide who's. Who. We'll, we'll let the fans decide. It's great having you on. You, you and I have had a ton of offline discussions on the secondary consequences of COVID nineteen, the the consequences of the lockdown per se. And I think it would it's an important conversation to talk about in general, which we've been tackling on the show. But let's talk about the surgical aspect of things like the wait times. Cause you're obviously an orthopedic surgeon. This is your world. You're not like seeing the volume, obviously you, that you were having months ago. What are the, your perceived problems, issues related to this? I guess. So 
Yeah, as full disclosure, I'm an orthopedic surgeon here in Toronto. So my, my primary practice is in traumatology, so broken bones and hip and knee replacements, which most people have heard of and know of that we use to treat people with terminal arthritis in those joints. Um, and the impact to me as a surgeon and on patients especially um, has been, you know, uh, significant in many different ways. So first of all, in general, in Ontario and in, across Canada, there's an access problem to be seen by uh, an orthopedic surgeon to be able to see if you do need surgery in terms of a hip or a knee replacement. So obviously, since the implementation of shutdown closures and Directive 2 in Ontario, um, patients have not been assessed in person since about mid-March. So all referrals that were normally being filtered into offices via fax, email, centralized systems have been placed on hold. Now, as a result of some of the pivoting in healthcare, a lot of those referrals have been dealt with uh, virtually, but that has still caused a significant delay. But even more important than just the assessments and the referrals now is the actual surgery. Again, because of Directive 2, only life and limb surgery has been done in hospitals across Ontario. And that was just lifted last week. So we've had over 10 weeks of life and limb only surgery performed in Ontario. And that has come at the expense of a lot of other surgical subservices, um, which includes the majority of orthopedics. So the latest statistics were 94% of all orthopedic surgery has been canceled over the last three months. So that's not a small number when you consider what we used to talk about six months ago and a year ago was the wait times for surgery that has all been backlogged to this point. And now we have to think about the burden of disease. So, and I think rightfully so, when COVID hit, we, we sort of all hunkered down, right? You know, everyone was waiting. Everyone was waiting for this wave. Everyone was looking at Italy, looking at New York and saying, we've got to repurpose the operating room, the respirators in the operating room, the nurses. Uh, surgeons who had ICU training were asked to, to, to come out of the woodwork and volunteer for positions to man ICUs that we thought were going to be full of COVID patients. Now, I think the province and as healthcare providers and as a society, we did a great job of, of shutting that down, you know, social distancing and flattening that curve. Um, and I guess part of the questions I have at this point in our offline discussions is that, you know, we've, we were able to, to brace that storm that never really materialized as a storm. But my question is, we have to open the shutters and take a look around outside because the continued emergency shutdown of vital healthcare is going to have an enormous impact with you, with me, with our parents, with our colleagues, our friends. And I don't think we're considering that as a society. That's 100% it. It's, it's kind of, um, I, I, I think we don't talk about it enough and we don't, because by talking about it, potentially we could think of ways of of coming up with solutions. And like, if you think about it, you're like 10 weeks. Okay. And the other problem of the, the, the shutdown or the slowdown is it's not like tomorrow we're going back to normal. Like, yes, we're going to be doing more surgeries, but it's still at a, you know, a reduced capacity. So like this backlog is going to continue to happen. So to give you an idea of backlog right now, we've been shut down for about three months and hospitals and, and the province have been, defining plans to reopen. And we can get into those details in a second as to what stopped that and what the, the implementation of that is going to cost us. But at our hospital, we're starting a 33% ramp up. And what that means is, in this following month of June, we're going to be operating at 33% operative efficiency. 
So people are like, oh, you're ramping up. But that means we're falling behind by 66%. You know, it's not ramping up. We're mm-hmm. still falling behind, but not at the same pace we were falling behind as before. So at this pace, we can never catch up. We're at 33%. Then, you know, we're going to reevaluate in a few weeks or months to 50 to 75 to 100%. So to your point, you know, this isn't a, we can't catch up. We're not even starting to catch up. We're still, we're going to start to fall behind at a less pace. Mm-hmm. then if you want to catch up, you're talking about going over 100% capacity, which, you know, that's a whole other discussion, but people don't seem to understand that the resources involved for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I've got patients calling me in my office right now saying, oh, I heard surgery has started. Where am I on the wait list? And, you know, things haven't even begun to get started yet. We are at a, this is really going to affect a lot of people. Um, I think a lot more than they believe at this point, because what, what we're pushing back here is not a matter of two or three months. Like it's a matter of almost a year to 18 mm-hmm. months to catch up. If, if we ever catch up, the system in Ontario was borderline broken to begin this, mm-hmm. to begin before COVID hit it. You know, there were already excessive wait times and across the country in Alberta, uh, out East, there are massive wait times for elective surgeries. And part of that is cost control by the province. And part of that is just resource allocation. Mm-hmm. And now we're taking a system and we're asking it to slowly ramp up, uh, which involves, you know, a huge, everyone's saying, well, let's just find more efficiencies. You know, your previous guests, uh, Dr. Brian Goldman, uh, Jane Philpott, and Andre Picard were talking about, well, you know, with, with increased efficiencies, we could catch up in surgery. So first of all, things are going to be more inefficient. You require more PPE, more preoperative testing, more time cleaning rooms. Uh, social distancing in clinics, social distancing in the ORs, how people can go home, what physiotherapy resources there are. So first of all, in terms of inefficiencies, we're starting off with, we're going to be vastly inefficient to begin with for months. Mm. So even if we wanted to make the system run at 100% like it was when it shut down in March, there's no way we could do that with this new implementation of care that we have to have for COVID. And that's understandable. But people have to understand that this comes at a cost, right? So then we are not going to be able to work at 100%. And even if we wanted to work at 100%, we don't have the resources for that. Like they say, we'll run the operating rooms till later. And, um, you know, there are nursing unions, there, there are, you know, there's different issues where you can't just run an operating room indefinitely or running it on the weekends. And people are suggesting, you know, well, maybe we can redistribute the wait list by having a centralized intake. And I guess part of the frustration for me as a surgeon is that you have policymakers, non-surgeons, and CEOs of, of health units uh, telling people how, how surgery should be done and allocated. Having a centralized resource where you redistribute patients still fundamentally involves how, what your output is. If your output is a third of what it used to be, it doesn't matter if surgeon X or Y is doing the surgery. If it's being sent from Ottawa to Toronto, the output is the output. And at the end of the day, we have we had an output problem. We've exacerbated that output problem. We're nowhere clear or close to being able to resolve that. So redistribution of waitlists is, to me, it doesn't make any sense because what are you redistributing waitlists for if you can't even get through what you have on your plate? Right. Man, there's so, <laughs> it's so true. Like, I, I don't think people realize how, like, as you put it, how broken the system was before this even hit. and. One of the things, too, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm not a true administrator. I'm not a politician. But you would think this is something that, at least in the back of our, all of our minds as, as 
policymakers or what have you, that is like, how are we going to address this? You know, like how are we really going to address it? Because yeah, you're talking orthopedic, but think about the vascular yeah. surgeons, the cardiac surgeons, all these people with like, like conditions that could lead to death, you know? Absolutely. And we, we haven't even talked about screening. You haven't even talked about cancer screening and people that already have cancer that are waiting to have some procedures done or staging done, like all this shit's delayed. You know what I mean? And so like, we really need to talk about what is a realistic approach to this. I, I think COVID right now has, the response to COVID has paralyzed both government and hospital administration to deal with one problem that's in front of them. And to that effect, they've partially dealt with it well in terms of the shutdown. Um, but they've completely ignored the rest of society and how things work. And, and especially when it pertains to medicine, you just cannot shut down all care for over 10 weeks and expect that everything's going to be okay. I think people need to be made aware that their regular appointments and visits and surgeries and all this is going to take a huge hit um, unless we get this ball rolling soon and unless we have some frank and honest conversations. Uh, about COVID and its management and its treatment, because you know no one is talking about the the cost of the shutdown, and I'm not talking economic. I mean that's a whole other kettle of fish that you know I can't comment on. But medically, the strain that this is seeing on patients um, is going to be enormous in society. Mm -hmm. It's because I find it I find it ironic that six months ago, what were the two biggest topics in healthcare? Mental health and narcotic use. What do you think has skyrocketed since the shutdown in the last three months? Right. You know, we're locking people up and we're telling them to manage their chronic pain by any means necessary, including giving prescriptions for, for painkillers. So, you know, all of a sudden, these big ticket items that were really important, you know, governments don't seem to care about right now because they're, they're too worried about COVID. And that's a huge societal cost to us all. Yeah. And, and you think about this might seem a little callous, but like who is being affected by COVID? Like, you know, and it's, and it's people that most predominantly are, have poor, poor prognosis. Patients that their long-term outcomes are poor and we're ignoring the rest of society. We're ignoring our kids. We're ignoring the healthy. And I don't know. I, I, I just, you know, when, when you make decisions, you need to encompass all factors, like public health, all factors. How is this going to affect mental health, drug abuse, um, vaccinations, kids? Like that's also being impacted, right? Like kids are getting, families are less likely to go to their family doctor to get, get their kids vaccinated. Like there's all these downstream craziness that we're not addressing at all. It's like, it's like chess instead of check, no, checkers instead of chess. You know what I mean? That's a bad example. But you're, you're not thinking about three steps ahead. We're just thinking about directly what's in front of us now and saying like, we'll worry about the consequences later, which is, this is too, it's too much at risk, too much at stake. That mentality was okay for the first two weeks when we were waiting for this epic wave. But the reality is that wave never came and no one has been able to reassess what we need as a country and as a province and as a healthcare system. And I think you've really addressed the elephant in the room. Like, you know, and I, I can't speak to the exact statistics, but who does COVID affect the most? in terms of age group, in terms of uh, medical comorbidities, and in terms of their actual outcome. Um, and, you know, this, this huge press to put a um, majority of seniors on a ventilator and, and treat them for mixed outcomes, you know, I think we have to talk about the societal cost that to, to everybody else that has potentially treatable disease 
um, that has tests that aren't being done and care that's not being looked at. And at the end of the day, we are a country with finite resources. And I think that if we are diverting and shutting down resources, that is fine if we as a collective make that decision. But I just don't know if that conversation has been had with everybody or if everyone's aware of the cost to this as a society. Well, I mean, part of the problem is, the, is like, I was trying to bring this up yesterday. It's like the media angle of, like, it's just fear, 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 fear. And, like, it's a lot of the stuff is not based on, on reality. Like, I, I still to this day, you'll see these, these numbers come up, like 400 new cases or whatever. I'm like, on its own, that doesn't mean shit. That doesn't tell me enough, okay? Because you're testing more. You're testing people that wouldn't be able to be eligible for testing months ago. You know what I mean? So, like, they're asymptomatic. I want to know the real juice. Are we getting more hospitalizations? Are we getting, you know, uh, are we getting more ICU cases? Like, all this stuff. And then the other part of this, as I'm learning more about the, learning more about COVID, is if you look at countries throughout the world right now that have opened up and shut down, like, stop their lockdown. Despite this, the cases are continuing to go down, okay? Why is this not part of the discussion that we're hearing? Like, do you hear that? Like, have, if I told you today, Israel stopped their lockdown weeks ago, and they're continuing to have drop-in cases. Like, have you, is this news to you? Have you seen that in the news? Like, well, you know I mean, what I mean? My brother lives in Norway, and they had a temporary lockdown. But then their, their kids went back to school well over a month ago. Things have opened up. And I think people are cognizant and practicing social distancing to a degree, but otherwise society has, for the most part, like started to resume without the fear factor, right? Without the sensationalization of every death, of every new case. Because to your point, we have to ask each other, what does what what the diagnosis mean? Yes, you have COVID. And I think people still need to remember that the vast majority of people recover from COVID without, without sequelae. And... And at the end of the day, you know, what are we trying to prevent? At the end, the shutdown was done to prevent the overburdening of our medical care system with, with death to the point where we wouldn't be able to treat people that we could normally treat, right? Flatten the curve. Like, like what, to flatten the curve, that was done so that we didn't have an Italy model where you just had people dying in their homes and couldn't even be seen by EMS or ambulances or doctors. They just, there's too, many, too much death. We never approached that here in Canada because we did a very good job of shutting down. But, you you know, like, so we're not going to cure COVID. There's no vaccine that we know of on the horizon. So we have to have a plan to live with this for the next 12 to 18 months, potentially, and function. And and right now, I'm not seeing any leadership from our leaders, both medically and, and provincially and federally, about how do we live with this? Everyone talks about life after COVID or life after the shutdown, but no one's addressing the fact that nothing's going to change in six weeks or in four weeks from now. There's not going to be a new miracle where you're not going to be, you know, subjected to the risks of COVID in the community. Uh, it's still going to be out there. It's still going to affect people and it's still going to kill people. And we, we know that the idea was never to cure COVID. It was to manage the death rate. Mm-hmm. But I the think- media seems to make it seem like we, we're all in this together to beat it. And I think we've lost sight that we're not trying to beat this. We're trying to write it out. It's exactly, as I mentioned before, too. It's like, what are our objectives? And I feel like they're changing all the time. It's, as you said, it was always to, like, make sure we're not overrun. We are not overrun. We need to, like, we need to live with COVID. It's like everything else has risk. We know that has risk. You drive a car. It has a risk. You go in for surgery. It has a risk. This is something that people are going to have to 
Like we're going to have to collectively decide what our, what your level of risk is. And I don't think that discussion's being had. And it's just, it's, it's horrible. I just find it so troubling. Like I, I got, I've said the story before neighbors that are waiting for, for like uh staging can like for their cancer surgery that was that been delayed. And like, who knows if, you know, from if something goes from stage one to stage three or what, what, or metastasize. Like we don't know, like 10 weeks is a long time. Um, I would tell you, we do know my wife's a radiologist that deals in women's imaging and abdominal imaging at Sunnybrook. And now they're seeing a surge of, of volume in cases again, when they're reevaluating people and her first, week of stuff coming back was like no one's been watching this stuff for the last three months and so the the tumors that are coming the reassessments that are coming things are bigger people were so scared to go get routine testing and even now if you go to the cancer care website right now cancer care ontario all screening tests have been canceled still Mm. like so those things are all getting worse so we know what's actually happening like two-thirds of mammograms across the province have been canceled up until now so you know we talk about screening for covid but we forgot that we still screen for things like colon cancer breast cancer which are very treatable unlike a lot of people with covid that go on to die a lot of these things that we're ignoring now are treatable things and that are going to get potentially a lot worse and it's not like well you know what next month we're just going to do three months of mammograms or three months of colonoscopies you know or psa tests like they all these screening tests that are designed based on epidemiology and numbers of how to treat people and how to screen most effectively for people. You know, we've, we've basically just said, we're going to shut down all that science out of fear. And I I just, I don't know who, who's making these decisions. And like, like, is there a balanced viewpoint at the table? Is there, you know, a patient advocate? Like imagine if you are that cancer patient that's waiting for, or that potential cancer patient that's waiting for staging. Are you having a chance to express yourself? Is your, is your voice being heard uh, where decisions are being made? And I feel like it's not. It's, it's all, I'm, I'm, I just, I'm a little nervous that this has been politicized. Do you know what I mean? Like all yeah. this gets like, how is the perception as opposed to what is best for our, our patients? And this is what, I mean, and I, I feel like, because like people give me shit for bringing up like, how can you not always say stay home, like lock yourself in a box? And I'm telling you, I'm frontline. I've seen this shit. When more cases come, this affects my, my life and fa- my family. Okay. But I'm also thinking about what's the, for the greater good. You know, like we got to ask ourselves these questions because there's a lot of people still suffering as a result of what we're doing. That part has not, not been advocated, has not been talked about in the media has not been talked about by the talking heads. You know, if you look at, at, if you look at politically right now, the one thing I think I feel that, that can affect them is the numbers. So they're concerned about how many cases we have and, and how many people are dying. And their main goal is to, to mitigate that because there's a political risk involved with that. But the political risk involved of the, the medical, you know, fallout that's going to happen in four, six, 12, 18 months is not something that can be seen nor I feel do they care because it's not on their radar for now, right? Like as, as a politician. And if you're asking like, you know, public health doctors about how to best manage COVID, I think they're giving a very good answer of how to manage COVID. They're telling everyone to stay at home, you know, uh, to, to socially isolate, to not see seniors, to not, you know, not do anything, to minimize going outside your home for any reason. But we've taken that in isolation. We've not asked the public health care doctors, what is the best for society's health? 
we've asked them how to manage COVID. But mm -hmm. I think that their role should be how to best manage global health in the province or the city or the territory of the country. But we've given them a very narrow focus, which they've answered very well. But that's the only thing we're listening to is that slice of, mm -hmm. of our health. Yeah, I'm wondering, because, you know, if you, as you mentioned, that's part of their, their job is like the global health of our society. Um, but do, this is why I, I question, is it, is it the politics? Is it fear of being wrong? Um, like what? Because it, it, it's just, it really isn't being addressed. Like, I'll still, I mean, I had a conversation with some of our colleagues the other day about, you know, how everyone's doing and they're saying their kids are doing fine and all that stuff. And, and I'm like, literally, kids' help phone is trying to double their staff right now because of the amount of like distress amongst our youth. And that's youth, man. I know I, I'm the people that listen to the show, I harp, harp on this, but that's the future, man. And all that shit that makes, if they get uh, significantly impacted, that's like generational impact on these kids. Absolutely. And, we, and we're not, this, do you hear about this at all? At all? No. Yeah. And, and, and your mental health was a big deal. And I feel like we've just completely ignored it now for the sake of COVID. And like I keep, I keep saying, and I keep re returning to this, like we've got to ask ourselves, what's the cost of, of saving that one extra death or that one extra life if it means that 100 people are going to be in their house or kids don't get to see their friends or, or develop or go to camp? or medical tests aren't being done and regular health checks aren't being done. Like we, we got to tell ourselves, like, it's not like the cure for COVID is just one more day away from lockdown. Like, you know, there is yeah. no cure. It's about a management strategy. And so we got to sit back and really take stock of, okay, as a society, we value our youth. We value our mental health. We value global access to healthcare, you know, and if we do, then we've got to have some serious policy changes and, and get the ball rolling because we're, we're behind. Yeah, and, and I mean, even if you want to speak the language of life and death stuff, like you're going to see a significant amount of non-COVID-related deaths. I think we have. Yeah, and, and you know, so like even if you, that's the language people need to hear, um, like I've seen it. I've seen people present late to, to hospital because of the fear of COVID. Um, you're going to see, as we talked about, late screening for their cancer or no screening for their cancer at this time delayed surgeries all impact life and function in your world function people that you know quality of life you want to be able to play with your grandkids and like you, this is delayed or might not happen because of what's happening now and and it, a lot of it is you know we've done such a good job for that early two weeks of shutting people down that we've ingrained them with like as you said that fear to the point where I've seen people, and I'm sure you've got stories like this too, you know, that we know that there's people dying at home from cardiac arrest, from stroke, from many manageable disease because they're too scared to get either their symptoms checked out by their family doctor regularly or two to present to the emergency room for, for what they would normally present. In my world, I mean, just two anecdotal stories. I have <clears throat> a young girl who fell down. She's about seven, broke her forearm. Um, didn't know it at the time. And children, their, their, their bones can bend and not break. And so she was swollen and her mother was too scared to take her to the hospital to have it looked at. Said it was just swollen. She fell down. Persistent pain for over a week. Finally called telehealth who said, you know what? You should really get it checked out and have an x-ray. Finally presents to the emergency room and then finally got referred to my emergency clinic, you know, at over two and a half weeks out of her initial injury. 
By then her bones had started to heal, but her arm, her forearm was angulated by 30 degrees. So the mother's like, well, the bones look bent. Can you straighten them? And I told her like, no, like her bones are almost done healing at this point. Unless we do an operation and re-break her arm, you know, I cannot straighten this out. And the mother was upset, but she had been so paralyzed by COVID. She couldn't bring her, her daughter. And, and people have to remember the emergency room and, and hospitals are one of the cleanest environments at this point, basically. The amount of PPE is concentrated right now in hospitals. And, um, and if you need urgent care, you have to get it. Absolutely. My second story is that a young guy with a Liz Frank fracture, a complex fracture of his uh, midfoot. And I lined him up for surgery by one of my colleagues. And when he came the day before to get checked because he had a lot of swelling in his foot, he said, you know what? I don't want to go through a surgery. And I said, you're, you're a 30-year-old guy. Like, you know, you're uh, a laborer. Like, you need a solid foot to be able to do your job in the future. Like, you need this surgery. He said, I'm too scared of COVID. And I said, listen, like, you don't have COVID. Um, we're going to treat you here. You're going to go home within a day. Uh, but you need to have the surgically fixed. He said, but what if I catch it? Can you guarantee me I will not catch COVID? Of course, you can't guarantee anybody anything. But the overall risks to him from COVID, I think, were far less than the risk of him insisting to be treated in just a cast and to go home non-operatively. Mm-hmm. But people are so scared because of what the media is telling them in the 24-7 coverage of COVID that they're making poor healthcare decisions and poor personal health that have associated morbidity and mortality. Now, those cases won't show up statistically as deaths like COVID on the news, mm. but there are real cases that are affecting our healthcare and, and patients' health every day. I'm sure there's dozens of these types of stories. Absolutely. Everywhere. I'm getting them all the time. Text messages about late presentations. It's, it's relentless. And I mean, this is part of why you're here, part of the goals of the show, while we've done some media appearances on just telling people, come. Like we, we want you to come and we'll, we'll do our best to keep you safe. It's like you said, we can't guarantee, you know, there's not a secondary, infect, you don't get COVID, but it is low risk. And, you know, the risk of you having that MI, like even I was talking to some colleagues that like the late presentations and their heart attacks were like, essentially part of their heart completely dies off and is dysfunctional and it's going to be lifelong impact from that. And that's treatable. Um, you know, so I, I think really we got to continue to pump out that message and, and reduce the amount of fear that's out there now. One, one thing I was thinking when we, we should discuss and bring up is like solutions, you know, like we all, it's one thing to kind of talk about, you know, all the, the madness that's happening and, but like, what can we do about it? Like, say, like, if you're, if you're the captain, you're on the, you're, run, you're running the show and, and we got to deal with these wait times. We got to deal with um, these, this uh, backlog of testing. What, do, you, do you have any solutions that come to mind? You know, I think, I think testing is obviously a key component to all of this. And uh, I guess disappointing as it is for me and for you is that, you know, we've had 10 weeks to figure out testing and we still don't have... <clears throat> rapid point of care testing. You know, I know we had the guys from Spartan on your show a little while ago, and then there's a massive recall. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, I, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard of a, a rollout of their new testing uh, to this point. But, you know, it, if you look at countries like Singapore and how they're successfully able to maintain their openness is that they have point of care testing in physicians' offices, and, and they're able to, to quickly turn around to see who is, you know, infected and not infected. So 
I think obviously we need more testing of everybody. And I think it's, it's sad that only now are we testing asymptomatic people and you and, and, and educated people have been talking about asymptomatic spread for so long, yet there've been so many restrictions from a testing perspective. So I'm glad that has opened up at least in the province of Ontario in the last, in the last week. In terms of writing the ship for, for medical necessity, I think that, listen, do we need to have uh, the Blue Jays play in front of 50,000 people? No. But do we need to have hospitals open to provide acute health care? Yes. Do we need to get physicians back in their offices and protected and serving the public? Absolutely. Because the sooner we can do that safely, I think the better. I think that we need to have, if we are talking about surgery, we need to have preoperative testing that's quick and that can be uh, rapidly turned around and people can make informed choices about whether they want to proceed with surgery or not. Because we know people that are COVID positive that have surgery have a much higher morbidity mortality rate. So that's really the big fear right now why we, everything was shut down was, well, what if we operate on this person? We don't know that they have COVID and then they have COVID and, and they have a major, major issue postoperatively. But I also think that's going to be part of our new normal. Like we're never going to have a 100% test. We're never going to be able to guarantee people that you don't have COVID and that if you undergo surgery, you know, you'll be perfectly fine. So I think that's a, that's a new risk in our world. But in terms of, you know, access to resources, I think, you know, extended hours have been proposed in terms of surgical timing. Uh, weekends have been proposed in, sur- in terms of timing. I think there's going to be a huge battle with all the unions. I mean, if you look at every hospital, um, a huge percentage of physicians have gone unemployed. Interestingly, all the care staff and nurses have still been employed. So they don't necessarily need to make up a whole bunch of hours, a lot of these people. You know, they're not necessarily looking for extra work. And if we're going to try and impose what is essentially extra work to catch up, I think we're going to meet some roadblocks. We have to come up with creative ways to either pay those people or incentivize those people to to be able to do that work and help with that work. It has been proposed that, you know, you know, the private sector could come in to be able to help in some of these fashions. I think that, you know, private clinics that do things like endoscopy or other things, you know, are, would we have, if they could develop a relationship with the province or local health unit to provide service, to be able to offload some of the excess care and testing that needs to be done and screening of, of non-COVID sort of disease, I think would be immense. When you're talking about surgery, there are not very many surgical facilities that sit unused in the private sector that could be asked to help you know, pump out volume. There are certainly a few. And I think that if the government wanted to, it could reach out to them. Uh, I think across the country, there, you know, there's definitely a handful that could help with that volume. But I'm not sure it's going to make a big enough dent mm-hmm. in, in, in the problem. I think we really got to look at, you know, how do we, you know, most cost effectively ramp up our output? Yeah, I, I, to me, it, it really is a matter of how do we take advantage of like, I mean, you, go, you walk into an OR at two in the morning, there's, there's, there's no activity, there's maybe one room active or whatever. And so there is the capacity. It's just, it's the other stuff. It's like you mentioned, like the unions uh, paying the nurses and so forth. And I I obviously don't have an easy solution to that. You know, um, I think personally, I think you're going to see an up surge of privatized proposals and clinics, especially when it comes to screening stuff where there's probably going to be less roadblocks. But yeah, we just, I think this is one of those things. Once again, you got to think three steps ahead. If you're the, you're the government, like, how re- realistically are we going to be able to achieve that? Because once again, it comes down to how we're going to provide optimal care for our patients so they don't suffer. And 
um, the sooner we address this and think about this, the, the better. And, and for right now, certainly, you know, there's, there's been a couple, you know, we could speak in Ontario, some things that have complicated issues. Like I think the fact that a lot of surgical, for example, nurses and stuff that went to the long-term care and, and so they've, they haven't been available to be able to ramp up ORs and, and, you know, the, the PPE shortages and stuff. But I think once it's, we feel like we have that ability, like it has to happen now. Like we need to ramp up per, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting you bring up ramp up. So we've had so many conference calls across the province, across the hospital, across the line about how to ramp up. And the province basically mandated that there has to be certain criteria to surgically resume non-life and limb surgery and all care. So if you need to go to the hospital to get an MRI, if you need to go to the plastics clinic to get something sewn up, whatever it is, you need to have a, a ramp up plan. And part of their mandate was we needed to maintain 15% of ICU beds and inpatient capacity for a second surge of COVID across the province. So like you've done shows on hallway medicine, but it's not like the healthcare system had 15% capacity sort of sitting around waiting for a second surge of COVID. So mandating that hospitals have to have 15% of their beds and acute care spaces available at all times for COVID before you can start to ramp up no hospital in the country has that capacity. Like hmm. hospitals in Ontario and across Canada operate at high 90% all the time. Yeah. So where did the province think that they could find 15% of beds? Unless, like they did recently because everyone was told to just be at home regardless of their medical conditions. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist in a normal steady state, 15% capacity. The hospital said, the province mandated the hospitals to say, you need six weeks of PPE before you can do anything. Like, if you look around, there's a no six weeks of supply PPE anywhere in Canada, let alone like the world, right? Like, you can't say you have a six week supply of any sort of PPE. It's, you know, it's week by week, month to month, you know, how you're making these decisions. But to think that anyone's sitting on a stockpile that large across the country in the province, again, I don't, I don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. So those conditions that are placed on hospitals to then start to propose how they're going to ramp up makes it a losing battle from the start. Like, there's, Based on those conditions, you, you can't have a, a, a meaningful ramp up discussion because no one can fulfill the baseline criteria to even start that. It's true. It's um, as you said, we, you know, we were, our hospitals were probably met that criteria from a capacity point of view. But it, as, you, as you mentioned, it was during a time where everyone was told to stay home and there was a lot of fear to come in. Um, but yeah, if, the worrisome thing is if we wait for that, it's just going to exacerbate the problem. And the other thing, too, is I know this might seem out of left field, but it's always we're trying to base stuff on data. And if we look around the world still, you know, in northern hemisphere countries that are have opened things up, COVID cases have continued to go down. And I don't I don't know why we would be different. Their hospitals are being overrun. Um, or getting increased cases in their hospitals. I, I, I mean, may, maybe we think we, there's reasons to be unique, but I, I'm not seeing why we should be different. I mean, the problem is, if you look at it, like, unfortunately, the media, right? Like this one physician that was in New Brunswick, right? That led to a lot of contacts. And so what's the solution is to continue a lockdown of the whole province, right? Like, there are going to be hotspots, but it's like, how do you deal with that hotspot? It's not the continued complete shutdown and isolation of a province. Like that's not realistic, right? Oh man. And then the whole regional idea of it, like I was talking about this yesterday, like 
Toronto, like if Toronto's hot and the rest of the province isn't, why should we, the whole province have the same treatment plan or have the same lockdown plan? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. I guess, you know, the politicians have been arguing, well, if, if you don't do that, then people will now go do their shopping in Ottawa or in Kingston or wherever. But I still think there's a huge difference between, you know, societal complete shutdown and medical shutdown. I think medical shutdown has got to be eased earlier and, and far greater. But I think society-wise, you know, absolutely. Like, you know, it's, it's you, you geographically, you're talking about the differences between like, a, a you know, Austria and France, or you know what I mean? Like, massive, massive distances. And so, you know, we, I think we have to manage them separately. Because otherwise, we're going to be at the mercy of every little hotspot, any little place at any given time. And, you know, just shutting down BC because, you know, we have a hotspot here in Ontario really matter? No. Yeah. And in Quebec, the, the headlines, like we had what? They reopened for the last couple of weeks and a few people have gone to school. A few people, you know, not everyone has gone back to school, but, you know, they said 200,000 teachers and students went back to school. But the headlines were 40 people have contracted COVID. But people fail to realize that what's the baseline level of new cases in the population anyway? And it's not because they went to school. It could have been just the baseline level of COVID being spread. But 200,000 people went to school, like workers and kids. Like that has a huge societal relief of burden for working parents, for people looking for childcare, for the mental health of those kids. But all we talked about was the 40 people that caught COVID, not the 199,960 that didn't. And what does it mean? You know what I mean? Like, I, I still don't know them. if they, okay, so they're, they're positive. Okay. We say yeah. in general, overall kids do well, despite that. Yep. Um, but does this still mean the curve is still flat? Does that, did any of them become hospitalized or do, do we think they're at risk of being hospitalized? You know, like that to me is the, the true question. Cause like, once again, it's about flattening the curve. It's not to say nobody's ever going to get it again. It's exactly. not, that's, you know what I mean? And so, as you said, man, media, 40 cases. And yeah, you know, like if you do your, do what you got to do to protect the, the kids and, and, and make sure do our best from a public health perspective to like not exacerbate the spread. But, you know, this is what's going to happen if we open up schools. This is the expectations. There's going to be cases. Because, I mean, the reality is you just shut down schools inevitably because like, there will always be COVID until such time that it burns itself out or there's a vaccine, neither of which is happening anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how much longer do you think we can continue to do these things? And to your point, those 40 people, like, what were the hospitalizations? What is the long-term mortality of that? And, and, you know, is that different than what it would have been if we had just let people be at home anyway during that time? Amen, brother. Amen. Anything else you want to throw down or... Uh think that we missed you know i would just i love that today you talked about you know sort of that flip side of covid because there's been so much talk about how do we manage in the icu how do we manage with the ventilators how do we manage with the disease how do we flatten the curve and and i think that you know we need to have more open discussions on what does that cost us as society as patients as 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 families with children you know what i mean like i don't know about you but like i'm going crazy and that's how you're doing on the home front but like you know like it, there's no summer camps there's no anything and um you know and i think that all the decisions are being made by people i feel These like things don't impact them 
Yeah, I definitely hear you. And um, I mean, this is the goal of the show, man, just trying to keep things balanced and and really show both sides of the coin. And and uh, Sebi, I think you, you helped illustrate that. So I appreciate you taking the time, my friend. Well, thank you. And I mean, and I think at the end of the day, we have to remember that is this a problem? And then will there be death? Yes. But we have to have honest, open conversations about how that affects all of us. And, and at the end of the day, we have a finite number of resources and a finite number of things that we can do for, for everybody. And we just have to have open discussions about how we're going to treat and help the majority of the people most of the time. And I, I feel like we've lost sight of that a little bit right now. Agreed. Amen, brother. And uh, give love to the fam jam. Really appreciate you doing this. And uh, oh, and Kalisha, Kalisha has got to. We have to just give a little love to Kalisha, otherwise she'll be so creased, eh? <laughs> Except yes. her, her love for the Leafs is well. Someone's got to keep working to keep the hustle going, so I'm glad she is. Amen. Hey, All listen, right. I gotta say, I love your COVID flow. Have you been doing that yourself these days, or what? Oh, like? mommy, cut this hair. Mommy, cut this hair, man. I was oh. like, shit, like, this is real. Nice. I mean, it's a little jaded, but it's like smooth. Who did your lid? No, man, I got, I got like, massive. oh yeah, you're still, you're still flowing. I'm rocking flow. I mean, I'm, I'm tapering the sides here, but like, <laughs> I, I gotta, yeah. Yeah. That's next on the agenda. When that opens up, I'll be first in line. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, bro. All right, bro. Stay safe. Stay safe. All right, Teddy, what'd you think of that one? That one was epic. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, we loved it. Thank you so much for listening to episode 44 with Dr. Sebastian Rodriguez. Please sign up to our newsletter. You're going to see links below. I want to thank our sponsor, the Better Together Project, supporting physician spouses. It's going to be an awesome event, July 9th. Um, sign up with the link below and get 10% off. Any comments, leave at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at quadcast. And guys, stay safe out there and thanks for listening. Right, Teddy? Right. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Peace.